Hello again. Great to be with you. Thank you for loading up and tuning in to MLEX's weekly podcast. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And, well, it was one of those weeks, wasn't it? The much-anticipated EU court ruling on the Google antitrust case was handed down, marking the culmination of years of reporting for our Brussels-based team. And there was so much detail to make sense of, it turned out to be a significant moment in history in the regulation of big tech. Meanwhile, in the US, the discussion over whether lawmakers need to do more to tackle transparency and liquidity in the Treasury market has ramped up following the stampede to redeem Treasuries for cash during the 2020 COVID-19 shock. And Neil Rowland will join us in the second part of today's podcast to make sense of those developments. But let's get stuck into the Google ruling right now. You'll have seen the headlines already. The EU court has confirmed the European Commission's 2.42 billion euro fine. Competition Commissioner Margrethe Vestager has emerged strengthened and vindicated. The Commission is now looking forward at how to translate this win into tighter regulation of tech companies. Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-in-chief. He's in Brussels and he has been working on this story and he's with us right now. So, Lewis, uh, firstly, in very uh, broad terms, just how big a win was this for the Commission? There's no doubt about it. This is a huge victory for the European Commission. This was to cast your mind back at a time when uh, it wasn't uh, the cool thing to do to take on big tech. Uh, The European Commission launched a case against Google, the first ever case. It was the trailblazer. Uh, They had a lot of criticism at the time. Uh, Lots of people saying there were newfangled theories and they misunderstood technology markets and it would chill innovation. And they constructed a case uh, based around this idea of self-preferencing. So if you have a big company that favours its own products, that this um, could squeeze out other people who want to get on the market. And uh, this, in this case, harmed the Internet. But you can think of Apple, Amazon, Facebook, who also have large platforms where they're present on their own platforms as well. And these people, you know, are also sort of in scope of the same philosophy. So winning this battle, while it's a legal battle, it's an economic battle, it's also a huge philosophical battle, a political battle about taking on big tech. And the fact that beyond the uh, nitty gritty of the court judgment, winning this big first case is a huge feather in the cap of Commissioner Vestaya. She um, has lost two other pretty big cases. One was against... um, Apple and Ireland over a big tax break for Apple. That was her big flagship tax case on the uh, for sort of big tech companies having tax breaks in um, European European countries. She lost that case. There was also a, a case about mergers in the telecoms industry, which she lost. Losing this would have been a, a very bad look. It would have been an unholy trinity. Uh, but managing to uh, win this one, uh, just on the political face of it, is it is a really, really big deal and a really big victory for the European Commission. And I mean, you mentioned the political aspect, but there's also the very real uh, side of it, which is uh, the 2.42 billion euros of penalty that was upheld in its entirety. I mean, that sends a very clear message, doesn't it? Exactly. You know, journalists uh, like me, you can you go straight for the number because the number's nice and big and juicy, makes a good headline. Uh, and usually on you know, in a lot of cases, people go to court because 
there's a good bet that you can get a slice off the fine. You know, some people say basically you can get 10% off the fine somewhere uh, deep in the in the bowels of the EU decision. Uh, judges will find something wrong and they'll and they'll they'll knock off 10%, which will cover your legal fees and will give you a little bit of money back to your back to your um, shareholders. Uh, that didn't happen in this case, uh, which again is, is is a big success. It's sort of strange it didn't happen because actually the court did find some problems with the fine, uh, but the court uh, has uh, power to uh, uh, restructure the fine, recalculate it. It's got sort of this ultimate Olympian power to do what it wants with the, with the number, and it you know ran its magic algorithm over the over Google's conduct, and it uh, decided to keep the two point four. 2 billion fine, which was the record fine at the time, in place. So again, that's another area where perhaps the Commission could have taken a dent uh, and it didn't. And before we get to the ruling uh, and the detail of the ruling, let's talk about the politics and the atmospherics of it. What does this mean for Commissioner Vestaya, who you just mentioned? I mean, will it possibly empower her to do more? Will she want to take this further? Definitely. Uh, as I said, as I said before, you know, this is a huge feather in her cap. Um, the European Commission has got basically two big sticks, um, one which it's used for a long time, which is uh, called Article 102, which is the sort of uh, taking on dominant companies monopoly stick. That was the one that was uh, uh, under scrutiny uh, in this court ruling, and it has been proved to be a stick which works and which hurts. Uh, and so there were a lot of questions about that. Uh, that particular mechanism has been seen as being slow, being cumbersome, can't actually bring these uh, big tech companies to heel. And having that proved, confirmed, supported by the court means that this, you know, this one big stick um, works and it can be wielded again if the commission wants to. Uh, the second stick that it's, it's, it's currently um, uh, preparing is what's called the Digital Markets Act, which is a brand new law, which is meant to actually circumvent all this long 10-year battle that you know, we've been in with, uh, or the Commission's been in with Google. These are long, burdensome cases that take ages. You have to prove all sorts of stuff. You, know, you end up in court. It's a lawyer's paradise. Uh, does the market really change quick enough? Have we all moved on? All these questions about whether or not you know, the Article 102 works are trying to be resolved by a new law called the Digital Markets Act. And the Digital Markets Act um, is underpinned by a presumption that the kind of stuff that Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon get up to is harmful. And so the court ruling, what it does is it proves, confirms, supports those presumptions, those theories that these guys, or in this instance, this guy, you know, uh, Google, is, is up to no good. Uh, it harms consumers and therefore we need uh, we need this new new law. So the court judgment will just conceptually, philosophically, politically affirm the kinds of presumptions which the European Commission has been making in order to justify a brand new law. And this brand new law will restructure digital markets. Well, given this week's court victory, given uh, the DMA and its significance as a new weapon at the disposal of the European Commission. Will there be more investigations into Google, perhaps in other parts of the search business, so beyond online shopping? It's a really good question, because uh, the first reaction to this ruling was uh, by a load of other companies who were aggrieved, saying, OK, this proves that uh, antitrust law works. Can you please launch another antitrust case into Google? So, uh, you know, 10 years ago, when, when this was all kicking off, 
Loads of people were complaining about Google from the travel industry, from local search industry, from flights, from hotels, from mapping. They were all complaining about Google. And the European Commission said, we can't do the whole array of Google search businesses. We're going to pick one bit, which is going to be the shopping bit, you know, the price comparison bit. When you, you know, the classic question was, I'm looking for a Canon camera and up come, uh, you know, 10 offers for, for, for cameras. And that's what the Commission decided to concentrate on. Uh, and said, yeah, we might look at all the other stuff later, but we need to establish the principle in one market in order that we can then look at it later. And then yesterday, obviously, when the uh, this week, I don't know when you're listening to this podcast, uh, when the court confirmed that that was um, uh, harmful to shopping, all the other guys stood up and said, OK, do come and do the same in my market, in flights or in, in, in travel, in, in local search or whatever. And the commission says, OK, we've got a framework to do that now. And it would be possible. Now, what the commission is also saying is, but we've got this brand new stick coming, the Digital Markets Act. That law will ban outright this kind of behaviour and it will ban it without the need necessarily to do a full investigation, spend 10 years in the courts, wade through the lawyer's paradise. I mean, the commission's got two choices. It can choose to go and launch these other cases. And there are lots of companies that would like to, to see that happen. And of course, they wouldn't take 10 years because the precedent has been established and Google would be wise to um, uh, not string those out. But the commission is also saying, look, there's this new possibility coming up on the horizon and that actually might suit your purpose a bit, uh, a bit uh, uh, more appropriately rather than trying to get us to uh, plough a load of um, uh, resources into brand new investigations. Now, as your coverage and that of our colleague Nicholas Hurst uh, pointed out, this all unfolded in the general court, which is a lower tier court in the of the European Union. So is there a chance that Google could appeal this? And if so, how long is this all going to take? Absolutely. Uh, the story never ends. Uh, you can uh, nearly always appeal. Um, in fact, if you look at other cases, there's a case involving Intel, uh, the chip maker, which was a record fine at the time. And that was, I think it was 2007. Um, that's still going, still in the court. And it goes, it, it sort of ding-dongs like a yo-yo up and down between different uh, chambers and jurisdictions, continually under review, like, you know, some kind of um, Escher um, painting. <laughs> the Google case, you know, could end up doing the same. Though. Google's got another two or three uh, 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 cases on the go. Two are in the courts. One is still um, under investigation. So it might well decide, look, uh, I want to appeal this. And to be honest, there's stuff in there that it could appeal. While the court judgment, as I said, on the face of it, has is this sort of philosophical, uh, political, uh, conceptual, uh, any other adjective you might choose to use, victory for the commission. Legally, you know, the the, the judgment one would one I've heard someone refer to it as a little bit of a shopping trolley. You know, it wanders around a bit. It's uh, um, there are some there's some reasoning in there which basically the court sided with the commission, but didn't entirely take the Commission's reasoning um, into it or didn't do it on the basis of what the Commission asked for. So for, I'll give you two examples. It said uh, Google con uh, committed this crime, uh, committed this um, infringement intentionally, uh, and therefore that justified a really high fine. The Commission never said, never said explicitly that this was an intentional uh, infringement. So the court has arrived at that conclusion itself, looking at the evidence, not based on what the Commission argued. Secondly, the massive legal fight uh, was about whether or not Google was um, a, a central facility, a central piece of infrastructure 
uh, the inter, you know, uh, like I imagine a port that is the port is the only way for you to bring your 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 goods to land, and that the Google search engine was the only way to get your products in front of um, in front of internet users. And Google said, European Commission, in order to prosecute us, you have to structure your case like this. The Commission said, no, we're not structuring our case. Like that. And there's, there's very 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 um, important reasons for that. Basically, it's sort of um, the ease with which you can run your case. And the court actually agreed with Google on part of that. They actually said, you are akin to an essential facility. You are, this case is about access to your web page. It is about the fact that the search engine is indispensable. So it sort of went halfway down the road with Google in agreeing with the way um, the search engine should be framed as a legal concept. But then it stopped short and said, but I'm not going to apply. It's not necessary to apply the really, really strict legal criteria, which usually apply in cases of a port or some infrastructure. And uh, actually, the commission's case is fine. And so what it's done is it's opened perhaps a new way of looking at essential infrastructure, essential facilities. And this has got a long history, this in the EU courts. People love to fight about it. And if Google wanted to appeal something, and appeals are as much political decisions as they are legal ones, it's got a root there. So, so in other words, Google would seize on those, uh, those reservations expressed by the lower court if it were to appeal. So, but the question, as you pointed out, is that does it want to appeal? I mean, uh, I mean, other than obviously paying the lawyer's fees, is that strategically the right thing for Google to do? If you go back to Microsoft, which, had, which was the last real, really, really big fight um, in the uh, tech fight with the commission in, in an American company, um, Microsoft lost uh, in the same way that, that Google did. And it decided not to appeal. There was a decision high up in the, uh, uh, in, in, you know, on Bill Gates's table at the time, or Steve Ballmer's table, saying, look, guys, let's just put this behind us. Uh, let's move on. Uh, we're we're lovers, not fighters, uh, and let's see if we can let's see if we can uh, let's see if we can get rid of this. And it did that, and it changed strategy, um, you know, business strategy to say, look, we've just ploughed too much time and expense into fighting these things. We're not going to win. Uh, let's put it behind us and come straight on, you know, innovating. And and after that, Microsoft did and has and has, has grown into a uh, continue to be a, a massive um, success. Uh, Google will face the same uh, decision. Does it want to keep fighting something which basically dates back to the mid 2000s uh, and small price comparison search engines in, you know, some European countries? Um, does it want to does it want to carry on that fight or does it want to, uh, you know, uh, change course? The difference that Google's facing is it's fighting on a lot of other fronts as well. As I said, it's got these two other cases in the court. It's got another case in in Brussels. It's got a bunch of cases all over the world. And, you know, maybe, you know, it sees a benefit in continuing the fight um, and, and, not, and not rolling over. Um, it, the, the legal points are there if it wants to take it. But someone somewhere has to go to, you know, uh, the top table of, of Alphabet and say, uh, guys, um, you know, can you back me to go again? You know, and, um, you know, good luck to, <laughs> good luck to that person. And uh, finally, I know that you and Nicholas have been passing the ruling and uh, uh, across every single detail in it. Was there anything uh, in the ruling that might have left people feeling a bit perplexed that uh, observers might be left scratching their heads as to what it actually means? Uh, you know, when you look at judgments, there's invariably you know, 
three judges, five judges, an, an odd number of judges. And sometimes, you know, people say it's like sort of, you know, poetry by committee. You know, it always comes out a bit mangled. You can see the bits where they didn't they didn't agree. or You can see the bits where they're struggling to find a compromise. In other court systems, what happens is you've got five judges, four agree, and they write, write the judgment. And the fifth one gets the right you know, uh, a blog post on his own saying why he doesn't agree with it. So you sort of, you um, you celebrate and you vocalise the disagreement. The European court system functions differently as everyone has to agree, which forms these sometimes quite ugly compromises, internal conflicts between judges uh, are masked with some, you know, uh, vague language. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, people, you know, who've got more time uh, than me and, and more brains than me to read 706 paragraphs of the judgment, we'll find those pretty quickly. Uh, you know, I'll give you one example. The uh, court employs the word super dominant and ultra dominant uh, <laughs> for, for Google's position on the market. You know, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure if there's a difference between the two. I'm not sure if anyone cares if this, what the difference is between the two, but it does sort of go to show that, you know, maybe they do need a, uh, you know, central committee of uh, linguistic scrubbing, uh, you know, in the courts, but, but um, the 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 inconsistencies on these things are nearly always um, in relation to other cases. It's how what a judgment does is a judgment builds on previous judgments, and it says you know previous judgment A B C. Um, if I apply it here, means the following, and so it is usually um, judge uh, lawyers will say you've misapplied those previous those previous rulings, and you know people will lawyers lawyers will um, will have a field day for that. Lewis, thank you so much for uh, following these developments so closely. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure, James. Lewis Crofts is MLEX's editor-in-chief, speaking to me from Brussels. And we'll post a link to some of the analysis from Lewis and Nicholas at our webpage, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X, marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab. And, of course, we mentioned the Digital Markets Act just now. Well, there's plenty of background on that at our website. In fact, we've done a few podcasts on the DMA as well. While MLEX subscribers have full access to the portfolio of work on the DMA, which goes from February 2020 right up until this week. This is MLEX's weekly podcast. I'm James Paniki. Thank you for making it this far. And don't forget you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. If you do, we'll appear in your feed automatically every Friday. Now, the US Treasury market is the deepest and most liquid in the world. Investors can buy and sell large amounts of debt securities without affecting the price. Well, that's under normal circumstances. Yet at the onset of the pandemic in March 2020, what was an 18 trillion US dollar market became deeply dysfunctional. To walk us through those events and the regulatory responses now on the table, we're joined now by Neil Rowland, a senior correspondent for MLEX who covers financial services from Washington, D.C. So, Neil, help me make sense of this. What happened? Well, James, uh, the liquidity in this most liquid of all of the world's markets dried up and prices became volatile over several weeks of March of 2020, when the pandemic was uh, at its height. Trades became hard to execute because sellers had trouble finding buyers. The market seized up. 
And the next question then is, why did this happen, Neil? I mean, why has this issue come to the fore now? Well, James, there were two previous uh, treasury market disruptions that caught the attention of regulators, neither as severe as this, one in 2014, one in 2019. All three occurred for a similar economic reason. There was a dash for cash, especially a desire to sell longer maturing treasury securities like 10-year bonds. And there weren't enough dealers able or willing to step up to serve as intermediaries or brokers for this surge in demand. And many segments of this market require brokers. Who were the sellers that fled the market during the 2020 COVID-19 shock? And who were the uh, intermediaries that didn't step up to provide the liquidity that was required for the sellers? Well, James, the answer will reflect just how complex this market is, uh, how many actors there are, and the differences in their motives for investing in this market. The biggest sellers were foreign banks who wanted to support their local currency. And then you had foreign private investors. You also had domestic mutual funds whose investors wanted to redeem their deposits amid the panic. You had hedge funds with heavy loans needing money for collateral. And you had long-term investors like pensions and insurers wanting to reallocate their investments to the stock market, which had plummeted and which thus promised long-term gains. Okay, so we've identified the problem here. What changes are now under consideration by U.S. policymakers and how might uh, they change uh, Treasury markets? Well, let me first uh, set the premise for this, the predicate, by noting who were the intermediaries that couldn't step up. You have banks. The banks had been finding it less and less profitable over the years to intermediate in the rapidly growing treasury market. And they were also themselves anxious about what lay ahead during the pandemic. You also had what are called principal trading firms or proprietary trading firms that trade electronically for their own accounts. They're less capitalized than banks, so they were less able to cope with market stress. So rather than trading being handled exclusively by intermediaries like this, policymakers are trying to figure out how to encourage an increase in trading directly between buyers and sellers. This is called all-to-all trading. They're also considering modifying the Basel III capital requirement called the supplementary leverage ratio, which encourages banks to hold on to treasuries rather than lend them in the treasury market. Also under consideration is subjecting principal trading firms, these intermediaries I just referred to, whose activity has been growing, to the same level of regulation as banks. They are now less regulated than banks. Policymakers also are considering improving the quality and timeliness of data 
on the positions and transactions of institutions, including foreign investors and domestic hedge funds, so that regulators can intervene in real time, not just do long-term studies and talk about corrections. The regulators were at a big disadvantage not having this real-time data. Also under consideration, expanding central clearing of treasuries, as is done for equities and derivatives, to reduce risk and improve transparency in this market. And last is um, enhancing oversight of alternative trading systems for treasuries, which are subject, these alternative trading systems are subject to less oversight than are their counterparts for corporate bonds and stocks. Now, some of these ideas that you've just laid out uh, now sound attractive on paper, but I wonder what might be some of the trade-offs or limitations to those policy options that are being discussed. Well, that's part of the thing that's vexing policymakers, because it's the trade-offs that are extending the duration of this year-and-a-half-long study with no end in sight. Let me give you an example or two, because they're also going to have to subject and these any rule changes to public comment before finalizing any rules, which would extend the process even further. But one trade-off involves expansion of central clearing, uh, which we've re- referenced. Uh, and with central clearing, banks have to pay initial margin to any clearinghouse they join, as well as other expenses to ensure the clearinghouse's ability to operate. It's not clear how many banks would simply stop making markets in treasuries rather than pay these costs. Another trade-off is with the Basel III a capital requirement that we referenced, adopted after the 2008 financial crisis to assure financial stability. If banks were given too much leeway to use treasuries to make loans in this uh, you know, troubled market, it's possible their bank capital would become significantly uh, weaker, thus exposing um, problems for possible financial stability issues. So as you can see, James, There are many difficult questions that have to be sorted out by regulators. Neil, these are incredibly significant proposals. It's great to have you covering these issues uh, for us from the US. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, James. Neil Rowland, a senior financial services correspondent for MLEX, speaking to us from the US. And we'll post a link to Neil's analysis of the situation at the usual place, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight, all one word, dot com. Just head for the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis, and of course, the full archive of MLEX podcasts. Now, it pains me to say that we've come to the end of this week's program. We will, of course, be back with you next Friday at more or less the same time. I hope you can join us then. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, Have a great weekend. I'll see you again very soon. Bye for now.